Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. For most of my life, my entry point into the story of the prodigal son has been my empathy for the older brother. I'm an oldest myself. Isn't it always the oldest who hold things together? How many oldest do we have here? I know, I got the same reaction earlier. Okay, now that's a generalization, and I don't mean to be unfair to those of you who fall elsewhere in the birth order, especially those who take on responsibility, but it is a common generalization. Of course it's the older brother who stays home, who works the farm, who his father can depend on. I suspect that in church, there tend to be more oldest, and not necessarily literally oldest siblings, but those with that personality of being oriented to responsibility. We're the ones who stick around, who fulfill our commitments, who follow the rules, who take care of business. We do our share. So I imagine that I'm not the only one here who finds it easy to empathize with the older brother in this story Jesus tells, according to Luke's Gospel. The younger son wants his inheritance while his father is still alive. He abandons his family and squanders half the family estate. And what does he get for his selfishness and the pain he caused? Well, he gets a reward. His father gives him the best robe, a ring, new shoes, the best calf for a party, all in his honor. You can't blame the older son for being a little resentful. The scripture tells us that the older son became angry and refused to join in the party. His father came to beg him to join in the celebration, but the older son expresses his resentment. All that hard work, the years of obedience, and the older son is never given even a little goat to have a party with his friends. But the younger son, the one who really messed up, is given everything, it seems. The older son is angry. It's easy for us to feel that way, those of us who work hard and try our best, when we see others who seem to get off scot-free when they do something wrong, or are even rewarded. Sometimes, it seems, crime does pay. Others sometimes seem to thrive without putting in much effort at all, not the hard work required of some of us in order to succeed, And for us, it can seem that for all our hard work, we're no better off than the ones who thumb their noses at our good behavior. So whose side is God on anyway? It ought to be our side, right? We, the hardworking? We, the responsible? Well, according to Jesus, God doesn't take sides. And... Like the father in the parable welcomes the scoundrel son as surely as he steadfastly loves his obedient son, so so does God do with us. In this season of Lent, our focus is on self-examination and preparation for Easter. We look at our lives and ourselves and consider the messy places we might prefer to avoid. We try to be honest about where we could stand to make some changes in order to be more faithful. 
Repentance is the word the church has used as shorthand for that process of honesty and openness to change. And the thing we repent of in light of our gospel text this morning is our resentments. We confess the ways that, like the older brother, we are stingy in handing out love and welcome to those who frankly don't deserve it. We confess the ways our values of loyalty and hard work take priority over love and forgiveness and compassion and understanding. We confess that our ways are not God's ways and that we could stand to do a little changing in order to bring our attitudes and actions more in line with God's ways. This is our confession. But to be honest, I found it difficult to stay focused on the theme of confession this week. For whatever reason, as I reread the story of the prodigal son this time around, I felt such joy at the reception the prodigal received that it was difficult for me to stay in the mindset of resentment, no matter how many times I've read the story that way. Instead, I kept thinking about the church and how we could welcome so-called prodigals with as much excitement as the father in the story does. I was reading something recently that suggested that if the church is really going to succeed in welcoming all kinds of people, we need to not be shocked by anything. It's a good point. If I show up and I see that you appear to be shocked by how I look or by what you hear of my story, I'm not going to feel welcome, no matter how good your intentions are. Our heart is in the right place in this church. This church is very genuine in wanting to be fully inclusive. But what about the folks whose life journeys might be a bit shocking to us? What about those whose actions or experiences are distasteful to us? What about the one who shows up here with a life story of wasting their inheritance and eating among the pigs? Or whatever today's version of that story might look like. Does he or she show up here to find a welcome that says, Yes, I know a story like that. I'm so glad you've made it here. Welcome. We know that in general, the Christian church today has an image problem, one that unfortunately it has earned. I think lots of people have a basic expectation that they wouldn't fit in if they did come to a church, especially for folks who have no church experience or for folks who have already had an experience of a church telling them they don't belong. I think the stereotypical image conjured up by the word church doesn't generally include a lot of diversity or complexity. The image tends not to include the highly unconventional, anything really out there. It's up to us to challenge that stereotype. Even I have felt that, and I have been in the church my whole life long. When I was about 24, I headed off to a, my first all-church retreat with a church that was new to me. I was shy, and I felt unsure of myself. On the way there, the group I was carpooling with stopped to get lunch and have a bathroom break. And I stood there in front of the restroom mirror, taking a good, long look at myself, and I found myself thinking, that doesn't look like someone who belongs on a church retreat. How many of you have seen the movie Saved? Do you know that movie? 
Oh, only a couple in this one. It's a favorite one of my movie. I, I think I only own maybe two or three movies, and this is one I own. It tells the story of a group of teens at a Christian school, and as the story unfolds, it challenges narrow-minded Christianity and dramatically broadens the image of who belongs. Years ago, our daughter Bonnie was watching this movie with a friend, a friend who was emphatically unchurched. At one point, Bonnie's friend looked up at me and said, you're a Christian and you like this movie? It was difficult for her to imagine that a Christian might actually be different from her stereotype. She could imagine that a Christian might want to convert her from her so-called sinful ways. She'd been told that in so many words by folks from a church in her neighborhood. But she couldn't imagine that a Christian might welcome her just as she is. Facial piercings and defiant attitude and opposition to authority and all. And I would love to see her connect with the right church. Not because I think she needs to find the one true path and be saved, but because I really believe that it just might save her life to know that God loves her through and through and calls her to be part of something bigger than herself. I think it could be transformative for her if she could believe deep down that who she is and what she chooses to do deeply matters to a God who always loves her and wants the genuine best for her. Sin is not a useful word to use with Bonnie's friend, or I think with anyone who does not understand that God loves them. It is not useful, I think, to use with folks who cannot bear to face that we all have wounds inside us, or who cannot imagine how God's grace can offer healing in the face of our broken places. But for those of us who share the conviction that God's essence is love, sin can be a label that normalizes a part of the human condition, that acknowledges imperfection and the inevitability that we sometimes miss the mark. And that, in turn, creates an opening for us to hear and respond to the message that God welcomes us just as we are that God calls us into God's embrace, that God's grace can be transformative in our lives. This orientation to our errors and God's love can move us to the deepest gratitude. What if we could make these people I have in mind very welcome here, whether it be the person I was at 24, or the person Bonnie's friend was at 17, or the person rebuilding a life after time in prison, or you can fill in the blanks with the folks who might come to mind for you. What if we could show how very welcome all these folks are in our eyes and in our church? What if we could open our arms wide like the father in the parable did? One of my favorite theologians is Sarah Maitland, who calls herself an amateur theologian, but she weaves a wonderful theology, and it includes some challenges to the church. Specifically, she takes on what she imagines would be the typical church's stodgy response to tattoos. She suggests that we could look at tattoos as an act of creating that responds to the yearning we all have to collaborate with the creator. That tattoos show nearly as manic a sense of color as God showed in creating the Vermont autumn. 
Going even farther, she imagines that the church could respond to graffiti on our walls, not with disapproval, but as an invitation to liven up stretches of boring wall. Now, maybe that's taking things a bit too far. Things could easily get out of hand. That's the voice of the older son, I think, isn't it? Frowning on the idea of taking things too far. Of course, the father in the parable took things too far, didn't he? He rewarded bad behavior and allowed himself to be shamed. Then, if it comes to that, God has gone too far, too. For the divine God to enter into human experience, for the Holy One to enter directly into the profane, isn't that going too far? That is how far God would go for us, how far the Father goes for his prodigal son. How far will you go? How far will we go as a church to be a church for prodigals? So when we do stand in the shoes of the older brother, as I so often have, then yes, let's confess and repent. And as we prepare our spirits to enter fully into the promises of Easter, let us be prodigal. Prodigal means spending extravagantly, even wastefully, as the son did with his inheritance. Let us be the prodigal church, extravagant. Let us waste our love on those who don't deserve it. Let's go too far. Amen.